Uh, good morning, everybody. If you could find a seat, I have uh, kind of bad news for the people in the first. Deborah Layton, give me that number again. The first six rows. You don't have to go back now. You don't have to go back now. But uh, at the end of Sunday school, you'll need to move back because that's how many we need for the confirmands and for uh, the day school choir and um, the clowns and the jugglers and everything else is happening. Okay. Uh, well, it is uh, my great pleasure. Uh, there's a lot going on here, which is necessary for the next service, but uh, thanks, Gary. Thanks, Kevin. Do you all know Gary and Kevin, two of our sections? They're great. They're great. Uh, my great pleasure to introduce to you uh, George Carey, the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury, and Lady Carey, Eileen. Uh, they have been in uh, ministry in England, everywhere from the parish level uh, to uh, even being the head of a theological college, a diocesan bishop in Bath and Wells, which is a beautiful spot of England. Uh, if you ever want to impress your wife, take her there. Uh, it's really lovely. And you get to see Stonehenge. So uh, that was in your diocese, wasn't it? Stonehenge, yes. Uh, and, um, and then, of course, becoming the 103rd Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, so we're here this morning to uh, talk a little bit about ministry in, uh, in the UK and uh, their ministry uh, abroad as well. And so I wonder, uh, Archbishop, if you wouldn't uh, say a little bit about yourself, your background, and, uh, and where you, when you became a Christian. Well, thank you, Andrew, very much indeed. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here in such a, a vibrant church. Well, Eileen and I have been married for 55 years. It'll be 56 in June. Um, I've been a Christian um, a little longer than that. In fact, we both actually grew up in the same neighborhood, a... Um, a little place, well, it's a big place now, called Dagenham. So you are in Birmingham. Uh, Ham is a Scandinavian name for village, because you think of Hamlet as a small village. So Dagenham was the home of a Viking chief called Dagen. So is now you wouldn't know any Scandinavian links there any longer. It's working class. Uh, my mother and father came from the east end of London. We were bombed out in the war. And um, I met Eileen at church, actually. Um, I was 17, you were 14. And um, I said, I'm going to get this girl. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and we'd be, you know, it was wonderful, really, because I went on into the forces. But before that, um, I didn't come from a, a church-going family. Eileen did, uh, a Scottish family, and, uh, but my mother and father were quite devout. If anyone had said to them, you're not a Christian, they would have objected pretty violently, actually. Um, my brother Bob, who was four years younger, had started going to church, and from the uh, house we could see the stubby tower of Dagenham Parish Church, quite an old church, going back to Norman times. And one day he said, why don't you come along to church? You'll, you'll find it very exciting. Well, I'd never equated excitement with church, of course. But uh, that intrigued me. I went along there. There were lots of young people. And that was uh, fascinating because I got into a, a group called Christian Endeavor. Eileen was in it as well. 
and I was struggling intellectually because I, being an East End of London family, evacuated during the war three times. You know, we were so used to German bombs coming over, we could always um, tell a, 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 the, what was it called, doodlebug. The doodlebug had an engine, and it, if it stopped suddenly, you were in trouble. If it carried on, if you could hear the noise of the doodle bug, you, you were safe. And I lost my best friend at school. He was killed by a bomb. So we lived in uncertain times. It made me think about God. Is there a God? Does he love us? Um, if he does, can we know him? So I started to read a lot. And um, suddenly, I, rather like John Wesley, found my heart strangely warmed at the age of 17. Um, I went into the forces. What were you, what were you reading? Well, um, there was a fellow called a Methodist called Sangster, who was a, a writer I um, uh, valued. Tom Rees, I don't think you know that name, but Tom Rees was an Anglican evangelist. He was very good indeed. And um, other writers. I think C.S. Lewis was coming on stream about that time, but I can't remember the details of that. But these were popular Christian writers, also philosophic writers, because I do believe that um, Christianity meets the mind as well as the heart. So I went to the forces, um, not with any great intention of eventually becoming ordained. I went to Egypt and served in Iraq. And when I was in Iraq, there was a particular moment. I was a an HFDF direction-finding wireless operator. These are the days, by the way, when we did Morse code, did our, did our, da da did our, and so on. And uh, we were in this particular branch where we were helping to navigate uh, cargo planes, and um, it, the little hut was out in the desert with Bedouin tribes wandering around. And one evening, I was on late shift, I walked out, looked up at the sky, millions and millions of stars. It was so black around me in the desert. And there was a conviction then. I wanted to serve God. What it was going to be, I didn't know. So I went home with this idea, I want to serve God in some way. And the first person I met when I was demoted was Eileen. We went to a church party, didn't we? And uh, it was a foggy evening. And friends of ours have said very cruelly that we've been in a fog ever since. But uh, uh, so that's that, that's the short version. Right. And Eileen, and what about uh, what about you? Well, I'm from a Scottish background. My parents um, um, had come down to England to work, so therefore I was born in England. But all my relatives are Scottish. Um, and I was brought up in a Christian home. My mother was a devout Christian and always took my sister and I um, to church and Sunday school. And, but it was really my personal faith that was sharpened when it was the Billy Graham Crusades of 1954 in Haringey. And our church took a coach along every Wednesday evening. And um, that really was where um, I, my faith became very personal to me and was not just the faith that I'd been brought up with um, by my mother. And so Billy Graham means a lot to me and a lot to my generation in Britain who were influenced by his mission. 
um, and by the you know, the wonderful crusades that he had all over the world. And I believe there are a lot of people who owe a tremendous amount to him, as I do. And also um, the home church for... Um, we had to learn parts of the Bible. So it's all, um, you know, it, it's all in, within me, that, because that was how um, it was that we, um, in those days, we learned. And we had to learn. And we were grateful for it. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the impact of Billy Graham's crusade in England, because I think here in the States, we almost take it for granted. Well, of course, Billy Graham's going to have a crusade this weekend in some large city. And yet, the impact on Anglicanism in the UK, of course, the crusade that followed at Wembley, uh, going up to Oxford to preach, and then even around the communion, like in Sydney, where, you know, the Jensen brothers being converted there uh, in a Billy Graham crusade. I mean, I think he was an amazing servant of God for his time. And um, the 54 crusade at Haringey, 56 in Wembley, he came back to Bristol when we were there in the 80s. And um, it was still the point where you could invite your neighbors along. You felt you could invite them along. And, um, I mean, the impact he had was absolutely amazing. Mm. And um, I thank God for him. And we had the privilege of going to his home and meeting him um, when George was archbishop, which was just a wonderful joy for me to meet this man who meant so much to me. Mm. Well, tell us a little bit, you know, you mentioned that it was a time when you could invite your neighbor to go to a crusade, uh, a big evening of, of church music, uh, testimony, uh, really the preaching, and then, of course, the invitation following the preaching. How has culture uh, in the UK, which I think is becoming more and more the case here in the States, um, how has it changed so that that type of mission would be pot, uh, ineffective, A, and then B, what does mission look like in the UK now? No, I want either one. I don't think it would work now. I really don't. I think we've moved on so much in the way we communicate with people that that is not the form of communication that would now work as it did in the past. Um, it's just, we're so used to so much technology now. The word is not the main thing. It's the television and it's everything else that goes with that. And I just don't think these big crusades could be part of our culture any longer. Do you think too though that there's, there's an element of um, even in the 1980s, being able to, you know, it, it was still somewhat Christian in the culture, and so it wasn't taboo to say that you were Christian. And, but even that evolution in society of, you know, the reluctance of people uh, to even go into a building that looks remotely like a church. Yes and no. I think, although I know it's absolutely right, things have moved on to, or, or moved back, if you like, because they don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Um, we've become a very argumentative society, very polarised, and just 
focused on politics all the, all the, all the time. I think uh, mission has to take it in form these days. I mean, I was talking to Michael Green because he's a very dear friend of ours and he's very much an evangelist and he's still doing missions in universities in the UK and, and they don't do the usual thing where sort of a Bible passage, hymn sandwich, someone preaching and, and so on. These days it's almost like I call it Christian cabaret. A cabaret meaning you're not really going to actually have prayers or anything like that, but it's an open-ended thing in a nice, I say, a hotel suite, and you you use food. I mean, why is Alpha so successful? Because it's focusing on fellowship and food, and the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. That applies to women as well, and um, so that's the way things are moving, and can be very successful, but. You're not going to have streams of people coming to the front with a late altar call or anything like that. It's much more in terms of, is there a God? How can we know that God? And interspersed with music and sometimes humor as well. In other words, you've got to bring into it what I call a cringe-free atmosphere. And people, you were saying, they come along to church, and it's a completely different thing. Look, look at the way you're seated, you're facing the front. It could be by listening to an orchestra or whatsoever. So it's not, it's not conditioned to talking to your neighbor or anything like that. So it's a completely different way we've got to explore things. Whether that is the same for America, I don't know. Uh, you're more church-going than we are. But even in Britain, actually, churches can be places where you can have a discussion and, and so on. And we're quite excited by what's happening in the Bath and Wells diocese. We were recently members of um, a group of people looking at new ways of being church. And one elderly lady in a little village has really done an amazing job in the church to make it more open and more attractive to out, outsiders to come in. And that's a really wonderful success story. What has she done? Well, bearing in mind it's a really old church. I mean, going back hundreds of years. Um, it's cold and damp, no toilet. So you do basic things. You install a toilet, you install a kitchen, you make it much more attractive, you um, do something with the... Um, amplification system and so what she's doing now on a Sunday morning it's a lively service, friendly doors are open, it's warm nice music going on and um, so it's a very ordinary way of doing things but we awarded her a special prize for that because it's the opening of the doors because a lot of people in that village and this is true of a lot of parts of Britain they still look to the church as their church they may not attend it regularly it's their church and if you did anything to it such as get rid of it they'll be up in arms so you can tap into the goodwill of people and there's a lot of lot of around. Now when you were a diocesan bishop you did four missions a year in the diocese. Five. Five. Five missions a year in the diocese. Um, I don't think any Episcopal bishop in the United States has ever done a mission period. Uh, and yet you had a commitment to doing five missions and why was that important in your episcopacy and was there anybody else in England doing that? 
The one who's come closest to it is Mike Hill in Bristol. We have no idea who he is. Yeah. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's a great chap. and um, he, I mean, he is somebody who is a, a, a missionary at heart, isn't he? Evangelist, and he's a very good one. Um, but there's no one else um, I know, and certainly no one has followed in our footsteps. No, but people have to find their own way, you see. But I didn't want to be a kind of confirming, um, baptizing bishop, um, just visiting clergy and parishes. I wanted to get out there. Uh, with a lay team, and so we had, didn't we, I think we had a, a number of people who were very good in dramatics, we had people who were wonderful singers and musicians, and we brought them with us, and they went into schools, which usually started on a f Wednesday evening, when they visited schools on the uh, Thursday, Friday, we had meetings in the evening. Um, I would take things that were quite familiar, but the first mission we ever did was was down in Wellington, in um, Bath and Wells, Darcy's, where we took marriage to have and to hold was the theme, and we focused on marriage, relationships, and tried to make it friendly, informal, cringe-free, as I said, and it was very exciting. It revolutionized that parish priest ministry, I can tell you. I would love a series on how to make marriage cringe-free. Uh, that would be really remarkable. I'm thinking more of church. Oh, church, yes, of course, of course. Uh, but marriage is never cringe-free. Yeah. Yeah. It can be no holds barred. That's but, right. Uh, now, but, but that sort of was, was upended uh, when all of a sudden you received a call to be Archbishop of Canterbury that in order of precedence in the UK is only next to the royal family. And so... Uh, that has with it a lot of responsibilities, uh, and did you feel that it was it was overwhelming for both of you that that you spent time doing stuff that was more state related, where you wish that you were still in those sort of relational type of mission type ministries? It was much more difficult with the being in the post of Archbishop to actually do something like five missions a year, but we continued in Canterbury Diocese doing just three? three three a year and only from Friday night to Sunday night we just couldn't give up the rest of the week but we still had a lay team in fact a lot of the lay team who've been in Bath and Wells were with us there and um, we went into by the invitation of parishes or deaneries um, still to do mission because we just felt it was so important and we needed to be rooted in the parish ministry because that was what we had been called to. And so it was a great joy to be doing that in Canterbury as well. Um, I have to say that the lot, when I uh, received the call to be Archbishop of Canterbury, it was in the middle of a mission. Hmm. Where was it? Yeah, it was that, yeah, I can't remember, but um, it was, um, I got this phone, phone call from Margaret Thatcher's um, secretary, could he meet me, and um, I, he said, are you coming to London soon, and I said, oh, well, we were there early in the week, uh, we'll be back in London in September, and he said, oh, that's too late. So I thought something was funny about this conversation. So I said, is it urgent, Robin? And he said, very urgent. And I said, well, in that case, you come to me. I'm not coming to you. 
By the way, this is a very English conversation that's happening on the telephone. Um, so, um, um, he said, I'll come on Thursday morning, um, I'll meet you on Bath Railway Station, and then I've got to get back to a royal garden party in the afternoon. So I thought, what's going on here? I mean, he's coming out and he's got to get back to a royal garden. It's got to be serious. And uh, he came, um, Eileen, we arranged, we were getting quite worried, weren't we? And uh, we said we'll meet in the gardens of a pub that afternoon. <laughs> and so he handed me an envelope from Margaret Thatcher offering me um, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the bottom fell out of my world. Mm. I, I was only, I'd only been a bishop two and a half years. So I was really, really um, on a steep learning curve, really steep. So we met, and I said to him, I'm not going to answer this because I and I, we never make a decision like this without consultation with one another and praying about it. So we'll give the answer. Uh, but I had to go right on into the mission, didn't I? And you were doing something in it as well. So, do they have a blue plaque, the little blue, in, in the pub garden? Uh, that's where they like a historical marker on the side of the road. And the pub is called the Red Lion, isn't it? The Red Lion. <laughs> the Red Lion. Uh, here on this place, uh, the Carries bottom dropped out. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. That parish we're doing the missioning. That parish we're doing the missioning. When we see people from there, they still remember that, hmm. and they feel it was their parish that he got the call. Uh, well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> very proud. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. You know, it seems to be that um, archbishops of Canterbury, as of late, have not been diocesan bishops for very long. I mean, uh, Rowan had not been, uh, and he'd really been in academia, and then Justin Welby, of course, had just been uh, a bishop for a couple years. He had been, though, been a minister. He had been a priest in the parish. Um, Justin more so than Rowan. Right. Yeah. But still not much experience as a bishop. No, no. No, I've had more experience uh, than the last, oh, Archbishop in the last 150 years, I think. In the parish. In parish ministry. And year, uh, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, 597. Mm. Yeah. 597. Yeah. What do you want to say about Well, I hope they've changed the furniture. Just, uh, <laughs> I mean, you had a lovely, you had a lovely bishop's palace in in Bath, uh, but uh, you know, your first night in Lambeth Palace, what what, what was going through your mind? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary place to live. I mean, it's a it's a big palace, but most of it is um, offices and um, state rooms, um, guard room and state drawing room and dining room. Um, but the, the Archbishop's apartment is on the first floor and just a three-bedroomed apartment and a very modest apartment. Well, it depends where you're going. It's first floor for us. That's right. In England, it's the first floor. It's the yes, second it's floor for us. First for us. That's right. yeah. Second for you. <laughs> um, a very modest apartment. And I, I think probably if you're a person that doesn't particularly like people, it will be very hard to live there because our main entrance was the main entrance for everybody. So we could not go out of the palace without going through um, the main rooms and the offices and everything and meeting people. I always jokingly said you couldn't go down and pick up your newspaper 
in your nightgown and slippers because you would meet somebody. So you need to like people to live in a, a place like that. But yeah, it was good. <laughs> and, and for you, being in, in the thick of it, well, yes. I mean, when I said we were on a steep learning curve, I mean, that really was tr true because, I mean, I hadn't been in the House of Lords, you see. So, as soon as I became Archbishop of Canterbury, and I was not yet, in, even in my third year as a bishop, I was right into the, the House of Lords, lead, leading the, the church there, doing a variety of things. We had never visited um, other countries very much, had we? Um, we hadn't been to the States, we hadn't been to African countries, so immediately the Anglican Communion was a bewildering experience, which we loved. I would say we loved visiting the Anglican Communion, loved that aspect of it more than, than the Church of England, definitely. And so when you became Archbishop of Canterbury, that was the beginning of the decade of evangelism, which of course saw yes. tremendous yes. growth yes. In, the, in the global south. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about your experiences. Why do you think, uh, and this is a very difficult question, so you can dodge it if you'd like, you, we saw explosive growth in the global south, and yet the decade of evangelism in the developing world didn't seem to make that much of an impact. No, it didn't, but what it did achieve was to actually um, put evangelism and mission right on the agenda. I mean, I, we remember when we were up in Durham, um, Archbishop John Habcourt was the bishop, had he been the bishop of, of Durham, and he asked me to introduce the discussion to the Darcinson Synod on evangelism and mission. And it, it was like, I don't know, it wasn't received well because it was un uncomfortable. Because the attitude in the Church of England, that we're here really just to serve and minister to people, to um, baptize, marry, dispatch them, and uh, that kind of thing. But the world was changing, and somehow we had to actually realize that the gulf was growing between the church and the world, and we had to find ways in which we can narrow that gulf, show that we're human beings, and show them we had a message worth believing. Um, so that was the background. I have to say, looking back now, Evangelism, a mission, is on the um, on the agenda. The Church, um, you might feel that you know, the Church of England is losing its way, and in some parts it is. But there's confidence, and there's a lot of good things going on in the Church of England. And uh, um, ministry numbers are keeping up. There are very good churches. We go to a very vibrant church in Berkshire, um, and uh, so many churches um, have got life, lots of life in them. So that's where we've got to go, I think. Um, but as you were saying, the global south, certainly. I mean, it, but it was the African bishops who came to me and said at the Lambert Conference, uh, in the 1998 Lambert Conference, that they were the ones who put forward, can't we make the 90s a decade of evangelism? So all I was doing was actually responding right. to their invitation. What was happening? Yeah. yeah the, um, I've often heard that an Anglican's favorite verse concerning evangelism is, and Jesus strictly told them to tell no one. And um, there's no, and so, I mean, in the, in the Western world especially, there's a, a reluctance to commend our faith uh, to, to other people in creative ways. But I guess, you know, if you know about Peter Berger, he sort of yeah. did not, he says, you know, uh, he's 
against this whole idea that the world is getting more secular and secular. He would say that it's getting secular where it's getting secular, but in fact, you're seeing it getting more religious in other areas. And so you may see some dark spots in our churches, but there are some very bright spots like Holy Trinity Brompton and the number of churches that they planted or taken over and uh, all with the Bishop of London's support and approval. We have a son uh, who's ordained, and he is doing a, quite a remarkable work. He's part of the Fresh Expressions movement in the Church of England. Do you want to say... Well, yeah. Yeah. Mark's up in Harrogate, which is in North Yorkshire, and um, a, a, a lovely um, town, um, but very over-churched. A lot of Anglican churches there. And um, Mark was asked by the bishop to leave his diocese in Sheffield and move up there to be the first fresh expressions minister. So it means he doesn't have a church. The church that um, originally was the parish um, has, had been declared, declared redundant because it was unsafe. And then another little church which he um, had when he first went was in the grounds of a cemetery. So it was a chapel of ease. And um, gradually, Mark has been able to um, remove the congregations from these, and now they worship in groups, they worship in a pub, they worship in a school, all these small groups, and they come together in the church hall. Um, And uh, now it's all been legally done, and it's no longer called a church, and it's called Kairos. Um, so it's, it's taken a long time for Mark to get all the, the legal paperwork done. But he's still part of the Church of England, but in a totally new way. And um, we go up there and um, the services are, you know, there's coffee going on. You go up and help yourself to coffee. There's different things going on. It's nothing like sitting um, looking at somebody's back, you know, you're all sitting looking at one another. And actually, it's it's wonderful. I mean, I think George and I would find it very difficult to lead something like that because we're so much more used to the formal. But um, Mark is getting unchurched people in, and that's the whole aim of it. People who've never darkened the door of a church come in, and that's what his congregation is made up of. So it's tough because he hasn't got a lot of leadership. He's having to build it up, but um, doing an amazing work, and we're very proud of him. You know, one of the things that I saw in Oxford, it was so startling, and for as an American, I could hardly believe that, that they would do it, but at the big student churches, St. Ebbs and St. Aldate's, they had taken the pews out. They had removed the pews of these historic churches in order to make room to accommodate uh, the student body. So it is much more of a, well, I guess we might call it a church in the round, uh, all, all sitting together. But we did that in 1975 up, up in Durham. Um, we, uh, we were called, I called to be vicar of St. Nicholas Durham. And we took over this church, and it was in dire need of change. And so we stripped out all the pews. We made it a very attractive place, and it was, it, we believed in a seven-day-a-week ministry, people coming in every day, hundreds of people, because as you go into Durham, it's the first building on the right. As you enter St. Nicholas, the patron saint of travellers and, and so on, and the congregation mushroomed. 
It was a fantastic time of renewal for us personally and what was going God was blessing us in all kinds of ways and it was extraordinary. And, and the church is still vibrant. It's, it, it's bucking the trend on church attendance. It's, it has five services on Sunday. And two evening services. Two evening services. You know, Don't get any ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, we commend the idea. <laughs> Maybe the vestry are noticing this. <laughs> and if you didn't hear his 9 o'clock sermon, he recommended having the clergy salaries, uh, and now he's asking for more services. <laughs> well, tell, what does your, your ministry look like now? What does it look like to be a former Archbishop of Canterbury and a wife very much in ministry? Well, Eileen, I'd love to hear what you have to say, too. <laughs> what does it look like now? Well, <laughs> I just keep him on the road. <laughs> I do the packing, I do the booking, <laughs> and I make sure he gets to the right place because he's got a hopeless sense of direction. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's actually a joy still to be in ministry. I mean, when you're a Christian, you never shrug it off. It's always there. And we have the privilege of being invited to so many places, many more than we can ever take up. Um, and that is a real privilege, and we just thank God for it. Um, our children keep telling us they want us to slow down a bit, um, and we will one day. I think I know Dom and I will take care of that. But um, it's a privilege to do what we do, and we're, it's always a joy to come to a church like this. It really is. Can I add to that? Because I want to say we've been blessed through America. Your church is fantastic. Uh, you, I know many parts of the communion right the Episcopal Church of. I don't. I've seen it blessing through its giving, your generosity, parts of Africa, uh, many parts of Africa indeed, and other parts of the world. So keep up your generous work. Um, there's a vibrancy about American Christianity, which is the envy of many parts of the world today. And um, we don't want you to lose that, and a church like this, and you're doing a fantastic job. Oh, that's nice. Uh, you and your young team, the youngest dean in the Anglican Communion. Is that and, uh, You must be. And, um, and, probably, and probably the youngest team in the Anglican. That's true. Yes, so that's terrific. So maybe what you lack in age, you make up in energy, enthusiasm, ability. Right. So, well, let me ask you, has anyone ever kept you up as late as I have? Uh, oh, yes, yes. But, <laughs> but you're but, the only one here that's done it. Yes, I'm the only one here that's <laughs> them out late. He can also, we, went to the, we went to the Nick. Just kidding, we didn't go to the Nick. <laughs> it was lovely, and it was a very, a very good red wine. I yeah, Gianmarco's, we went to Gianmarco's. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. well, you should he be didn't saying that. didn't get us back to the Tuckweiler until quarter to midnight. <laughs> well, and the Holy Spirit goes to bed at midnight. So... <laughs> Well, our Holy Spirit does, yes, because yes, he's, he's looking after us, you see. Right. Well, good. Well, it's been such a delight having you with us, and uh, a wonderful week of teaching and fellowship and uh, preaching this morning, and uh, just so very grateful uh, to you uh, for your ministry uh, alongside with us. And so, but you're, this is not it. You're headed uh, all over the United States, five weeks, and we're yeah. kicking off the tour. Yes. Five weeks. So, well, so, we hope that we have an exhaustive. Well, pray for us. We're going yes. on to Washington because I chair a, a small charity out of the World Bank called the World Faiths Development Dialogue. 
And it, it, it's fantastic, really. We enjoy that because it's a different kind of thing. We're trying to actually activate religious communities to care for the poor and issues of development. Then we go to Greenville. Then we go back to Houston. Then we go to Florida. Then we go back to Houston. And then they put us on a plane and send us home <laughs> on back March the 1st. Well, let's pray for the carries and for our church. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your uh, church, the Bride of Christ, and we pray that you would bless us. And Lord, uh, as the bride does not eye her own garments, but gazes upon the bridegroom's face, that we would ever uh, behold our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the ministry that we share, uh, though separated by an ocean, uh, you have ransomed us, uh, both the Carries and those of us here in the United States, and saved us for a purpose. And so we pray that you would bless them equip them, give them strength, give them perseverance, uh, give them clarity, give them boldness, give them courage as they take your gospel literally to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we pray for our Anglican communion, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would, uh, that we might be one indeed as you and the Father are one. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Carries. Thank you very much.